unprecedented numbers. The UN would identify aggressors and act decisively to protect the world's security, just as it did in the 1991 Gulf War. Yet, when the younger George Bush went to the UN in 2002, there was more anarchy than anything else. A new crisis seemed to threaten world peace every few months. The son, in short, had not inherited any kind of stable world order from the father. George H.W. Bush had declared in 1990 that the rule of law would replace the rule of the jungle, but within less than five years, the rule of the jungle had taken command. The post-Cold War order, with the U.N. as its centerpiece, had quickly collapsed, more quickly than either the Concert of Europe, which lasted for 99 years, or the League of Nations, which was active for about 20. Something had gone terribly wrong. Where was the U.N. that was supposed to be the post-Cold War beacon for a better world? What prevented the U.N. from working, now that the Soviet-American rivalry could no longer be blamed for the organization's inaction? Why had international conflict and the new global terrorism spiraled out of control in an era that was supposed to be marked by unprecedented peace? The truth was that the U.N. was singularly unsuited to preserving global order. The U.N. had, and has, crippling flaws. The 1990s brought these flaws into sharper focus, but in fact they were there almost from the beginning. Indeed, the UN's record reflects one shocking failure after another, even in the organization's earliest days. The UN's founders created a world body based on a noble ideal, standing up to aggression, preserving international peace, and defending human rights and other fundamental principles. But it is now clear that the UN simply doesn't work. The UN is not a benign but ineffective world body. It has actually accelerated and spread global chaos. This book examines why the UN has been such an abject failure, what flaws have prevented it from fulfilling the ambitions of its founders and of its champions, such as George H.W. Bush. Recognizing the UN's critical weaknesses leads inevitably to this question. What must be done about the United Nations? This is not an academic question. Rather, it lies at the heart of the most crucial policy debates in Washington and the world's other capitals. Many people still suggest that the UN is a panacea for the world's most difficult problems. But carefully examining the UN's past role in some of the most intractable conflicts reveals that UN involvement, in most cases, only makes matters worse. There is no neutral ground. President George W. Bush has often been derided by his critics as a crass unilateralist. But when he went before the U.N. General Assembly in September 2002, he showed that he was keenly aware of the role that the U.N. should be playing in international affairs. The trouble, as Bush made clear to the delegates assembled before him, was that the U.N. was abdicating its responsibilities. While the immediate issue at hand was Saddam Hussein and Iraq, the President devoted himself as much to a forceful, revealing critique of the U.N.'s performance as he did to the specifics of the Iraq situation. Bush began his speech by reminding the delegates of the U.N.'s original purpose, to dedicate itself to standards of human dignity and a system of security defended by all. The U.N. had been established in 1945 at the close of the Second World War, when the horrors of Nazism had cast a long shadow. 
The UN's architects had created the world body expressly to combat aggressors and to protect basic human rights. Unless the UN acted against Iraq, Bush suggested, it would fail miserably at both. The president reiterated that the UN's founding members resolved that the peace of the world must never again be destroyed by the will and wickedness of any man. In short, the UN was born at a moment of extraordinary moral clarity, and Bush invoked the clear vision of the UN's founders, for he spoke in broader moral terms, not in the language of geopolitics alone. He started not with reports about Saddam Hussein's development of biological and even nuclear weapons, but by describing how Saddam's regime had repressed minorities, imprisoned tens of thousands of political opponents, and systematically tortured those whom it had arbitrarily arrested. Bush detailed the regime's techniques of mutilation, electric shock, rape, and burning of its opponents. He told of how Saddam's forces had gassed forty Kurdish villages, even those U.N. members who did not accept Bush's argument that an emboldened Iraqi regime might in the future supply weapons of mass destruction to terrorist allies could hardly deny Iraq's troubling record. Saddam's regime had trampled on everything for which the U.N. stood. More specifically, the Iraqi dictator had continually violated the 16 legally binding resolutions against Iraq that the U.N. Security Council had adopted since late 1990, and had ignored at least 30 statements from the President of the UN Security Council regarding Iraq's continued violations of those resolutions. All 16 resolutions were the most severe kind the Security Council could adopt, falling under Chapter 7 of the UN Charter, which was reserved for cases of aggression. Still, the UN had done virtually nothing to enforce its own resolutions. Even the Clinton administration in 1996 had pushed the UN to deal with the Iraqi problem, but the French, Russians, and Chinese had used their power on the UN Security Council to repeatedly block any decisive action. Bush was now in the same position as his predecessor. The case against Saddam Hussein was clear-cut, as President Bush pointed out, even if members of the international community did not want to acknowledge it. Though Saddam had said he would honor his commitments to the U.N., Bush said he has proven instead only his contempt for the United Nations and for all his pledges. By breaking every pledge, by his deceptions and by his cruelties, Saddam Hussein has made the case against himself. More important, given the wide scope of Iraqi violations, especially in the area of human rights, the President made it clear to the U.N. member states that this was one of the few occasions when they were staring pure evil in the face. Bush was right to put the case in such stark terms. Moral judgments were a necessary prerequisite for taking any action. But they were precisely the judgments that the U.N. declined to make. President Bush, in effect, threw down the gauntlet in front of the U.N. member states. We created the United Nations Security Council so that unlike the League of Nations, our deliberations would be more than talk, our resolutions would be more than wishes, Bush reminded the delegates. If the UN was to avoid the fate of the League of Nations, it would have to confront the Iraqi threat head-on. This was, he said, a defining moment for the UN. Will the United Nations serve the purpose of its founding, or will it be irrelevant? the president asked bluntly. 
George H.W. Bush had dramatically proclaimed after the 1991 Gulf War that the U.N. had passed its first test in the post-Cold War era. Now George W. Bush declared that all the world faces a test, a new test posed by the same rogue regime. The U.N. failed this test. It had indeed become irrelevant, in a sense, but it was worse than irrelevant. It was dangerous, fanning the flames of global disorder. How did this occur? Bush hinted at the U.N.'s main defect in various speeches he delivered at the time. The problem was that the U.N. refused to make moral judgments and thus ignored the crimes of Saddam Hussein, among others. A year later, speaking again before the General Assembly, Bush underlined the point that ultimately the U.N. had to take sides. Events of the past two years have set before us the clearest of divides between those who seek order and those who spread chaos. Between these alternatives, there is no neutral ground. Alas, neutral ground is precisely what the U.N. has repeatedly tried to stake out when confronted with clear cases of aggression, human rights abuse, even genocide. But in its repeated pursuit of impartiality, the U.N. actually has taken sides, in effect joining the aggressors and the abusers. The U.N. has, in fact, spread global chaos. Moral Equivalence the U.N.'s failures in the decade before George W. Bush went to the General Assembly reveal how the world body has fueled global chaos. Beginning with Somalia in 1993, the U.N. was in charge of one peacekeeping disaster after another. These failures were linked to some of the worst massacres of innocent civilians that the world had witnessed in decades. In 1994, in the Central African nation of Rwanda, some 800,000 Rwandan Tutsis were murdered in a deliberate campaign.